Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today is the Bahraini human rights activist Miriam Al Hawaja. Her father, Abdul Hadi, is one of three activists awarded the 2022 Martin Ennals Laureate. The award celebrates exceptional human rights defenders. Abdul Hadi Al Hawaja is serving a life sentence in Bahrain after being convicted before a military tribunal in 2011. Miriam, thank you for being on the podcast. My pleasure. For listeners who may not know the story, can you briefly describe those really extraordinary days in early 2011 when the Arab Spring reached Bahrain and there was the peaceful occupation of Pearl Roundabout in the capital, Manama? Yes, of course. Um, I remember, you know, it's 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 interesting because in some ways I can remember it as clearly as yesterday and in other ways it feels like it never happened. Um, but I remember the first day on the 14th of February, I remember one of the jokes that was made was that, you know, it was Valentine's Day and we we're talking about how we chose that date because it shows our love for our country. And that's why we did it on Valentine's. Um, and uh, there were sporadic protests that started in different villages in Bahrain at the time. And they weren't too big. But I remember that I was working as a free uh, as a fixer with different journalists who were visiting Bahrain on the occasion. And so I was taking them around from protest to protest uh, to write about uh, what was happening and to witness what was happening. And I remember I noticed a shift in the behavior of the riot police. Usually when there are foreign, especially media, you know, witnessing what is happening, the riot police are a lot more uh, hesitant to attack people in front of cameras, in front of journals, especially in front of people from the West. And the occasion on the 14th of February, 2011, I noticed that that shifted uh, because the riot police were a lot more adamant in trying to get people to stop protesting, to stop, uh, you know, having their peaceful sit-ins and so on. And so the attacks were were quite uh, heavy-handed. The use of uh, pellets, the use of tear gas, the use of um, sound bombs and so on was excessive. Um, and I remember wondering why it was that they are so violent on the very first day, because in my mind, if they hadn't reacted in the way that they did on the 14th of February, if they hadn't killed someone, shot him in the back as he was running in a peaceful protest, killed him, then I wonder if, you know, the next day we would have had that many thousands uh, upon thousands of people take to the streets um, to protest what was happening. And then from then on, you know, it was... Um, almost like a game of pull uh, of pull and push um, where we, you know, were protesting peacefully and then the government would, you know, take a few steps back because they were worried about what was happening. They were worried about the backlash. And especially, I think, when they saw the numbers, Bahrain per capita had some of the biggest protests in the Arab Spring. Like, can you imagine 40 million Egyptians on the streets? That's basically what we were seeing uh, relatively in Bahrain. Yeah, huge numbers more than 100,000 people in a country with an indigenous population of about 700,000 were in the streets protesting. And so the government would take a step back where they would, you know, stop, they would stop attacking the protests. They released uh, a lot of the prisoners of conscience who, who had been tortured in the past months. Um, and that's when people took over the Pearl Square. Uh, that's when, you know, people decided that this was going to be the 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 spot for the uprising. And so interestingly, it was it was quite amazing to watch how fast people were able to set things up. Um, you know, we had different tents for different um, 
for different purposes. Like there was attempt to deal with translation for foreign media. So any foreign media or journalists who needed support would go to that tent. Uh, we had a tent for people to talk about their experiences who, who were torture survivors and so on. We had a tent to talk about women's rights and so on and so forth. There was a huge stage that was set up as well for people to give speeches and so on. So it was quite amazing to watch it all come together in that way. And then, of course, on the 17th of February, the riot police attacked. Um, I was there for that. Um, it was one of the bloodiest days um, in that in that period. We It was in the middle of the night. People were sleeping, women, children, men, and so on. And um, they attacked during the night, in the middle of the night, you know, using tear gas. No, no, um, no warning. Like, there wasn't any warning beforehand. They just showed up. I remember the flashing blue lights that took over the entire bridge that overlooks the Pearl Square, and they started shooting at people. And that day, I believe it was three or four people who were who were killed, some of them execution style. And I remember this very well because I was also in the hospital uh, watching doctors try and fail to resuscitate victims of uh, the, the regime's violence. Um, and the military came into the streets and they took over the Pearl Square. And since then, Miriam? Since then, we've seen the government time and time again uh, use uh, violence as a methodology to try and stop people from demanding change, from demanding rights, from demanding freedoms. And I think the main shift that has occurred since then is that in the beginning, it was a knee-jerk, violent reaction to the protests where the Bahraini government also depended on Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates to send in riot police and forces to put down the peaceful protests, which they did. Um, and then, of course, the support that they received from the West as well in, in avoiding any type of accountability and in legitimizing themselves and prolonging their dictatorship. But that's interesting is the um, how it shifted from a violent, very violent, you know, on the streets type of response to the judiciary becoming the main tool of oppression, mm-hmm. where we not where we've had thousands upon thousands of people arrested, tortured and then sentenced to uh, prison terms in Bahrain. I remember a friend of mine who was at Pearl Roundabout, and she described what you just described, how there were tents and there were uh, a, a stage, people reading poetry, musicians, and she was euphoric, really, about what had happened. Uh, she said there were signs, neither Shia nor Sunni, we are all Bahraini. Uh, and mm-hmm. and that, that moment, as you say, it was a peaceful moment. It was met with uh, extreme violence, as you described. Um, I, I just want to go back to, I was there in Bahrain in December uh, 2010, as matters were starting to come to head. As you mentioned, there had been protests in the villages. And I met with your dad. He stressed then, as he's done, and he'd done for many years, the importance of a peaceful process as a means of achieving reform. Yet mm-hmm. he was arrested, brutally assaulted, subsequently convicted before a military court and sentenced to life imprisonment. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the night of his arrest and, and what has happened to your dad subsequently? Of course. Um, I mean, it's interesting the when you talk about my father and peaceful protests, because my father not only talked about the importance of peaceful resistance and peaceful protests, but he actually worked towards training people on that um, in the in the 10 years that we were in Bahrain when we moved back from Denmark from exile. Yes, your your dad uh, had received uh, political asylum and uh, the whole family was living in Denmark and you all returned to Bahrain in uh, 2001. So my father, you know, on the 
uh, night between the 8th and 9th of April, which is just four days after he turned uh, 50 years old, um, the riot police showed up at my sister's apartment um, and arrested my dad. They beat him unconscious in front of my family and then took him away with two of my brothers-in-law who were also beaten severely. My third brother-in-law was tied up, had his head half shaved, um, and then he was left there with his hands tied up. I wasn't there myself. Um, I was already abroad. I was doing advocacy. In my mind, I had left just for a short while. I had a very small suitcase and I was planning on going back to Bahrain. And I remember I was on a train in the United States and I fell asleep and I woke up with a very heavy feeling that I needed to check my phone. My phone was dead and I ended up asking someone for a charger. And as soon as my phone switched on, I received a call from one of my uh, close friends who told me not to panic, which of course, in our experience, we know that when someone tells you not to panic, it means it's time to panic. Um, and she told me that they arrested my father. And I remember immediately opening Twitter and reading tweet after tweet from my sister Zainab, who was describing how they showed up at the apartment, they broke the door, um, my father told my family to not react, that he knew that they were probably going to use force, but that he was going to go with them peacefully. And he said he didn't want them to use violence against any other member of the family. And therefore, he was going to go peacefully and he didn't want anyone else to react to their presence. And so as soon as they arrived, he put his hands up and he said, you know, I'm going with you. Um, but they started beating him. There were several of them. They started kicking him and punching him. And at one point, they dragged him from his feet down the stairs with his head knocking on every stair as they were dragging him down. And there, there was a trail of blood that was left on the staircase from where they had taken him. At, at that point, he kept saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And it was at that point that my sister Zainab tried to intervene and she was pushed uh, against the wall. And when my mother tried to protect her, she was pushed against the stairway uh, railing. And then they were they were pushed back into the apartment and the, they locked the door on them uh, so that they couldn't come out. And they took my father away. And it was at that point that we didn't know if my father was alive or dead because he was unconscious when they took him away. They, my sisters had watched his head hit every stair um, on the way out. We found out later, of course, that my father had also received a very heavy blow to the face, four fractures in his jaw, and it took a four hour surgery to reattach his jaw to his face um, with, with, I believe it was 21 metal plates and nails. You know, afterwards, during his healing process, uh, after the four-hour surgery in the military hospital, he was then again, you know, blindfolded, shackled to the bed and tortured in his hospital bed. And I remember him telling me that one of the things that got him through that night, one of the things that made him survive that night was that someone walked into his room. Of course, he doesn't know who because he was blindfolded. But someone walked into his room at night, held his hand and said, this will pass as well. And it was that, that one moment of human connection that really got him through that night um, when he was being tortured after the surgery. Um, and it just goes to say how much of a difference, you know, one human being and one moment of human kindness can really make, um, especially when people are struggling and are being uh, subjected to that kind of oppression.
For the next approximately two, two and a half months, my father was subjected to enforced disappearance. He had no access to a lawyer, no access to his family. My sister Zainab went on a hunger strike, even though she had a baby, my, my niece, and she was breastfeeding. And she ended up losing a lot of weight very, very quickly. And she became very sickly um, because she was demanding to know what was happening to her then uh, husband and, and to my father and my other brother-in-law. And it was because of her hunger strike that they allowed my father to call for just a few seconds. And my family thought that when my father called, being who my father is, that he would uh, let them know that he's okay, even if he's not. And that he would, you know, sound high spirited and, and everything like that. It would make the call would make them feel better. But much to their surprise, when my father called, the only thing he said was um, the suffering is great. And that's when they knew that something was really wrong. Um, and then we didn't hear from him for a while. Um, he was subjected to enforced disappearance again. And eventually we heard from a lawyer who saw him at the public prosecution that the lawyer had run into him. This is a lawyer that has known my father for many, many years and has worked with him closely. And he said that he did not recognize my father because of the torture and the changes to my father's face because of the amount of beating that he had received. Um, other people that I spoke to after that, uh, one of which had been in a prison cell not too far from where my father was held in the military prison, which is under underground. He told me that it was very clear that, especially in my father's case, the torture that he was subjected to was about reprisal. It was about punishment. It wasn't about getting information out of him. It was about punishing him for the years upon years of human rights work that he has done. And one of the most moving, uh, you know, testimonies that I've heard from people who shared cells uh, that, that were close to my father during that time was when one of them told me that in one of during one of the torture sessions that my father was subjected to because they could hear each other being tortured, which is another form of psychological torture, of course. But he heard my father say to his torturer, I forgive you during one of the torture sessions. And I think this is exactly who my father is. My father is someone who looks beyond the actions and trying to find the humanity in people uh, and trying to change things for the better. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, like as a human rights defender myself, I don't know that I, I would be capable of doing something mm -hmm. like that. Like I think it takes really exceptional will, will and strength to be able to do that in the moment. And then of course, uh, my father was subjected, as you mentioned, to a military trial. And he was sentenced to uh, life in prison. Uh, I think it was four days before my birthday. What happened to your, your father was appalling and awful. And it happened to hundreds of people. There were thousands who were arrested. Mm -hmm. uh, King, King Hamad commissioned an independent review of events uh, of the events of February and March 2011. The Bahrain Independent Commission of Inquiry, which came up with a damning report that confirmed the brutality which your father experienced and, and, and many others, the brutality the ruling family used to deal with what was largely a peaceful call for reform. There was some hope that the Al-Khalifa, the ruling family would follow through on the many, many recommendations in the uh, report. Has that happened in any way at all or is the report simply gathering dust? Well, I mean, I have my issues with the report to begin with. I think that there were that there were some like several shortcomings with the report. For example, the report, despite the damning information in it, which included a 
report of documentation of my father's torture, who continues to sit in a prison cell 11 years later, it did not explicitly call for the release of political prisoners. It did not explicitly call for the release of human rights defenders, like my father, who are in prison uh, and who have been tortured. It did not uh, explicitly name those responsible for the violence that occurred, for the extrajudicial killings, for the torture, and so on. So it created a scenario where we had all this information about the violations and the violence and the torture, and yet no means for accountability, unfortunately. The report did not carry any teeth, um, unfortunately, for us to be able to use it as a method and as a pathway to accountability. And I think that this is partially what the government wanted, because what they ended up doing is they partially... Uh, implemented a few of the many recommendations that were in the report. So they set up these, uh, you know, um, uh, window dressing uh, offices of what looks like reform uh, and accountability in Bahrain. For example, they set up the Ombudsman's office, they set up the National Institute for Human Rights, and so on and so forth. And they made sure that they were set up in a way where they were not independent where they were not able to carry out any real work and where the people running them were people who are known as loyalists to the regime. And so I think that you know the, the point of that report was to buy the government time. It was it had enough information for it to, to have an air of credibility around it, but unfortunately it did not have the language and the necessary um, means within it for accountability. And so what it ended up doing is it stopped a lot of the uh, ability that the civil society had in trying to provide accountability for what was happening in Bahrain, because suddenly all of these governments abroad who were initially, uh, you know, more responsive to our advocacy efforts abroad, they, they all started saying, well, you know, let's now give the Bahraini government time to implement these um, these recommendations, which, by the way, even if they had rec they had um, implemented every single recommendation in that report, it would have not addressed any of the actual issues that started the uprising, that caused the violence, and so on. To to put that you know uh, bluntly, and so what happened what happened is that it ended up buying them time, and so they bought they took that time, uh, and they took that time to entrench the oppression and the violence. They took that time to shift their methodology into a methodology that was better for them long-term long in, in making sure that they can continue in their oppression. And so for us, it basically killed a lot of the initiatives that we were working on in trying to get real accountability for the government. And, it, and at the end of the day, even those partial uh, implementation of some of the recommendations ended up being withdrawn mm -hmm. uh, and pulled back unfortunately. Successive UK governments have repeatedly said that uh, Britain supports reform in Bahrain and indeed has, has put millions of pounds into uh, some of these organizations, including the Ombudsman, and that they are keeping an eye on human rights abuses and human rights issues in Bahrain. What do you make of those claims, Miriam? I would laugh at them if they didn't make me want to cry, <laughs> I think is the best way to answer that. I think that the British government is very much complicit in the violations that occur in Bahrain. They have not only supported in setting up these window dressing uh, offices and processes that have helped the Bahraini government uh, whitewash their 
violations and human rights crimes, but they have even trained police. They have provided CCTV cameras that are used in prison to watch my father 24 seven, as well as hundreds and thousands, uh, hundreds, if not thousands of other prisoners as well. And, and as I said before, you know, this, this is something that I've heard from the British as well, the whole idea of, but we're training the police on human rights and, you know, they're going to receive these human rights trainings. And I said that the only difference that their trainings make is that when the police are torturing or beating someone, they know which human rights they're violating, but it doesn't actually shift or change anything. The thing is, is that you cannot, and I think the British know this very well. I think even if they say they don't, then they're lying. But I think that, you know, it's very clear that you cannot think that you can go in and do, you know, basic human rights training for police or prosecution who are, who are working within an entrenched violence oppressive system and think that this human rights training that you give them is not going to be mere a P a PR tactic or a mere PR tool. And that's exactly what it is. We've seen time and time again, the same um, public prosecution, the same pol riot police that the British have trained and worked with taking part in violations, taking part in torture, taking part in beatings, um, while the British, you know, walk around talking about how great the Bahrainis are doing. And I think one of the things that uh, is very interesting is to look at the difference between the Bahrain country reports that is published by the United Kingdom versus the one that is published by the United States. It's almost as if they're talking about two different countries. So in my mind, especially with so many of the Bahrain ruling family, some of which have actually participated in torturing uh, political dissidents have have graduated from Sandhurst in the UK. I think it is very clear the complicity that the United Kingdom has, not just in Bahrain, but in the Gulf states generally. Mm. Your father is one of three awarded this year's Martin Ennals Laureate. And uh, just quoting uh, from the, uh, the Martin Ennals people, he embodies Bahrain's spirit of protest and has inspired a generation of activists in Bahrain and beyond you're there in Geneva for the award ceremony. What does the award mean to you, to your family, and for the wider cause of human rights in the Gulf and the, and the Middle East? Well, I think, you know, one of the most important things is that a lot of these governments bet on the idea that if they can withstand the uh, backlash in the beginning of an arrest, and then hold on to the person in detention for long enough that the world forgets about them that people get tired of advocating for them, they get tired of campaigning for them and so on. And I think this award proves the exact opposite by giving the award to someone like my father who's been in prison for 11 years now, um, despite being a Danish and EU citizen, um, and despite being a human rights defender, they are sending a message to the Bahraini government that it doesn't matter how long you imprison someone, the world does not forget about them, that they will continue to be recognized and so on. And I want to say that for me personally, and I know this is the case for my father, because one of the first things he told us when we told him about this award was he said, make sure you use this as an opportunity to shed light on the cases that don't get attention. Um, it's always been, you know, even right now in a situation where my father is uh, suffering from chronic pain because of the torture, because of the hunger strikes, where his uh, health is suffering a lot and where he's being denied medical treatment since January, he is so concerned about the idea that he might get uh, individual and singular attention and, and has told us multiple times since uh, you know hearing about the award that it's important that we use it to make sure that those who don't get it talked about, that those who don't get international attention um, are able to use this as an opportunity for them to have their cases heard as well. And, uh, and not just in Bahrain, you know, we have hundreds of prisoners in Bahrain. We, you know, Human Rights Watch was just recently 
and a report talked about the, the arrest and torture of children in Bahrain. We have other human rights defenders in Bahrain, a Singhis who's on hunger strike, Hassan Shema, who's being denied uh, medical treatment as well. And I can go on and go, go on with the list. But it's not just in Bahrain. If we talk about Saudi Arabia, where we have a number of prisoners of conscience in the UAE with Ahmed Mansour and Mohammed Al-Rukan and others, in Egypt with Ala Abdel Fattah, who's currently on hunger strike for a long time as well, and so many others, hundreds if not thousands of prisoners. You know, I have friends who are fa who have fathers who have been disappeared in Syria for uh, for for many years. And so I think you know this this idea of of giving the award to my father is not just shedding light on his case, but hopefully shedding light on the plight of hundreds and thousands of political prisoners and prisoners of conscience in the in the Middle East and North Africa region, uh, but then also beyond that in the world. Mm. Well, it speaks very much of, of your father and, and who he is that he has said to you and the family that, you know, make sure that this uh, is an award for all of those people, all, all of the people that you named and all of the people that uh, that are in those prisons, that they not be forgotten. How How is he? And how how are you how often do you get to speak with him we get to speak to him on a video call every sunday um you know it's in bahrain nothing is consistent as uh, i think joe stork from human rights watch put it really well when he said that in bahrain you don't have a dysfunctional justice system you have a highly functional injustice system um, and so even though you're supposed to have rights and so on, as a, even as a prisoner, those are not guaranteed. Uh, it depends on whether they feel like granting you those rights on the day. So whenever we're waiting for his call, we never know if he's actually going to call, if they're going to make us wait for an hour before he's allowed to call and so on. But we do usually get to speak to him on Sundays over video call, which they initiated after COVID because they stopped all of the in-person family visits. And he is, you know, generally my father being who he is, he's in very high spirits. He, I think despite being in constant chronic pain and having all of the health issues, including uh, he's at real risk of uh, irreversible blindness in his right eye right now because the doctor suspects that he might have glaucoma uh, in his eye. Um, despite all of that, he tries to present himself as, you know, in high spirits and being really strong because he also doesn't want my mother and others to be worried about him, to be worried about his health. But we are very concerned. We're very concerned that things might go wrong at any time. Um, that my father, the only treatment he has received in the past before he started being denied treatment in January, was in the same place where he was tortured after his surgery. And so you can imagine what that does to someone uh, who has been tortured uh, in the past. And he, the whole reason why his uh, treatment started being denied in January is because one during a call with us, uh, one of the video calls with us, he was telling us about his situation and the guard kept yelling at him to stop. And when my father refused, he kept yelling at him and telling him he's going to cut the call. So the guard was shouting at him to not talk about his condition in prison with his family about his health. And so my father turned to the guard and said, um, he said, uh, you know, this is my right to free expression. That's what these calls are for is so that I can tell my family what my condition is, what my situation is, what my health is. Um, and then he said, and if I wanted to criticize you, your boss, or even the king himself, then I have the right to do so. 
And then in January, my father also staged a one-person protest in the prison yard in solidarity with the Palestinian people uh, because of the normalization deal. And because of those two things, those two actions, my father has been denied access to medical treatment since then. Um, and he's already in a weakened state physically because of the torture, because of the multiple hunger strikes. And so, of course, we're incredibly concerned about what might happen, and especially about his eyesight um, and the potentiality for him going blind. But every day for him is is suffering because he has that chronic pain in his back uh, because of his bones, his spine, um, as well as, you know, he needs a secondary surgery in his face to remove the metal plates and nails as well. Um, so, of course, we're very worried about his health and well-being, and we're worried that something might go wrong. I don't want to get to the point where I'm instead talking about my father in the past tense. That's that's what we're trying to avoid here. That's what we need international pressure to make sure that we're never in that situation. Mm. We look around the region and we see how freedom of expression has been ruthlessly suppressed in the Gulf states, Egypt, Syria, North Africa. And yet that desire for freedom continues to burn keeping that flame alive it's it's a huge challenge miriam your father's very much a part of that you are your family is so many other people can it be done and and, and if so how um i think that my answer to this question would have been very different a few years ago uh, i think a few years ago i had a lot more hope um i really believe that you know, as as long as we can keep going, uh, that that's what mattered. And in some ways, I still believe that. I still believe that, you know, we the work that we all have done, as well as the generations before us, uh, that we've really, um, you know, sown the seeds that need to be there for things to change in the future. I really hope with all my heart that my nieces and nephew won't have to go through the same fight and struggle that we're going through. I really hope that they won't have to be imprisoned and assaulted and tortured by the same regimes that we're fighting right now. And the only way that changes is for us to continue going. But I think one of the things that we need is for things to change right now. We need we need for things to shift because I look around me and not just in the Bahrain civil society, but across the regions uh, where I have colleagues, you know, in all the different regions of the world, the amount of burnout that I see, the amount of health deterioration that I see in the different human rights defenders, myself included, you know, I had a bout of um, health complications in the past year that forced me to slow down my advocacy. You know, I spent the past 11 years traveling three, four, five times a month, every month to do advocacy around behind the region and other cases. And that resulted in last year, you know, me having slip discs and having to use a wheelchair. And now I've gotten to a point where I can walk up to 10, 15 minutes, but not longer than that. Like I still have to use a wheelchair at some points. And so just watching, you know, the health complications that come with being an activist, that come with being a human rights defender, they're so dire. Um, and part of my complications, of course, are also the result of the assault that I faced from the police when I was arrested and imprisoned in Bahrain. And so I think we really need uh, to revisit the way that the human rights community does things, the way that you know funding works, the way that the system has been structured so that certain governments can avoid accountability and certain governments have impunity and so on. The, the fact that there is such enormous double standard and hypocrisy when it comes to human rights and freedoms and democracy and accountability and who they're implemented on versus not. Because I always ask, you know, it's, 
we we always talk about never again and and human rights for all and freedom for all. But then I ask for whom, because it appears time and time again that some people's rights, some people's freedoms are more important than others. And I know this because I've been doing advocacy and human rights work on the local, regional, and international level for the past twelve years. Um, and so, if the human rights mechanisms, if the human rights system and structure did not work for a place like Bahrain, where we've documented the case so well, it's one of the best documented cases um, in the in the region in the past ten years. Then who do they work for? And if there's no if there's no hope for us because our government is in cahoots as an ally with the West, then how can we have hope for other cases as well? And I think that that's what. I think we really, as civil society, we need to come together and really redraw and re um, reimagine how we can change things moving forward. Miriam, thank you, thank you so much, and you, you, your family, uh, and your father are very much part of that struggle. And as you say, there there needs to be some consideration and some way forward to to keep the flame alive, but. Uh, for today, I, I thank you so much for speaking with me. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the human rights activist Miriam Al Hawaja. Her father, Abdel Hadi Al Hawaja, in prison for life in Bahrain, is a Martin Ennals Human Rights Defender Laureate, one of three named in 2022. We welcome your comments. It's been two years since we launched, and in that time, the podcasts have been listened to 75,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thank you to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on SoundCloud, Amazon Music, or other audio platforms. In addition to the podcasts, the Herb Digest daily newsletter features the very best of mean analysts. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees, and subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.